life is full of disappointments and wounds and hurts. And we know there is an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. But Jesus has given us life and hope and peace. And we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and darkness. We've been called to be overcomers, and we can, and we will. mountain lion is the greatest predator of human beings in the United States. Of all the creatures that end up killing human beings, it's the mountain lion that actually kills more human beings than any of the others. This is a picture of a mountain lion right here. That is not a mountain lion. <laughs> there, that is a mountain lion right there. <clears throat> Craig Childs is an expert on mountain lions, and uh, here's a, a, that's, okay, there he is. Look at him. He looks like he would be an expert on mountain lions, doesn't he? This is Craig Childs, and he's, a, he's an expert on the subject of mountain lions in the United States, and he encountered a mountain lion at a very inopportune moment. He was actually trying to find mountain lions and, and part of his study, and all the while there was a mountain lion that was actually tracking him. And at a key moment of weakness, of an inability to go to get any kind of cover, this mountain lion suddenly appears to Craig Childs. Craig Childs only has, he can't get away he cannot, he knows not to run, and the only thing he's got is a knife that is strapped to him. So he reaches down, and he gets the knife, and it is the knife and him, and he looks straight in the eyes of the mountain lion. He does not run because he's an expert on mountain lions. And here's the truth. He knows that no mountain lion actually will attack frontal of any of his prey. He will only attack as the person or the, the, the prey runs away because his attack is to always go and break the spine in the back of that prey. And Childs knows this. And so when Childs sees the mountain lion, he goes full face, full front with that mountain lion. The mountain lion, realizing he's not going to run, move, moves to the right to come and flank him, and every move, Childs moves with him, moves his whole body so that he's always full front. The, the mountain lion goes to the left, and Childs moves to the left, full front. And then the mountain lion lunges at him. But it's just an act. He lunges and then pulls back. But Childs, because he has studied mountain lions, understands this is how they, how they uh, go after you. They lunge trying to now get you afraid and run. Childs, knowing this, doesn't even flinch. The lion is stunned. He stands there a while. 
and he walks away. And Craig Childs is alive today only because he did not yield to his own emotions. He pushed his emotions away and he refused to run. Now the Bible says to us that there is an enemy that is after us, that wants to destroy us. Notice what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. I want you to be aware, he is saying, of what's going on, of what is actually happening behind the scenes in your life. I want you to be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy you. He wants to devour you. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. In other words, don't run. Don't panic. Understand your enemy because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. This morning, I want to begin a new series entitled The Invisible War. I want to talk to you in this series about the subject of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is simply the the invisible battle behind the scenes that is happening in your life and every Christ follower's life. The invisible battle that is happening in your life with an enemy that the Bible calls Satan. And over the course of this series, I want to talk to you about who he is. I want to talk to you about what are his schemes, what, what, what are his des- devices that he uses, his strategies to bring you down. I want to talk about angels, the good guys, and demons, the bad guys. I want to talk about what the Bible teaches about how to do spiritual warfare and how to be successful in these moments in your life when you are experiencing the enemy coming against you in your life. I want us to talk about all of this. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For every one of us in this room, We experienced from time to time suffering in our life simply because we're alive in the world. It is a part of the world. It is part of life. Suffering has a purpose, and sometimes, oftentimes, it is a valuable purpose in our life. Sometimes we suffer simply because we're alive, and there is not one person that's going to get out of this world, out of this life, without suffering. Not one. But many times we suffer in this life as a direct result of very poor decisions that we have made in our own life, wrong decisions that we have made in our own life. And sometimes we suffer as a direct attack of Satan himself coming against us to destroy us. And even in those times that we're making wrong decisions, we are making wrong decisions out of the temptations that he is bringing across in our lives. There is a real war going on, and you and I are very much involved in it. And so the question is, how do we deal with this battle that we are facing in our life? This morning, I want to begin by talking about who he is. I think we need to understand the enemy, who it is that we are facing. 
Now, there are many passages in the Bible in the New Testament that talk a great deal about Satan, and then over the course of the series, we're going to be looking at many of those. But there's two particular passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that so many people do not come across that gives us some real vital information to understand who is this person, who is this guy that we're dealing with. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 28 and in Isaiah chapter 14, these two passages of Scripture give us some deep insights into Satan. There are three particular things that I want to draw attention to that we get from the two passages, and the first one is simply this, that the devil is a created being. Very important that we get this because it helps us to understand who this guy is, but understanding that he is a created being. Listen to what Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 11 says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the model Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, there's the phrase, on the day you were created, they were prepared. Now, let's get the context of the entire passage. From Ezekiel chapter 25 to Ezekiel chapter 32, Ezekiel is hearing from God this word of judgment for specific countries, nations that are located around Israel. He has already given the the judgment that God is going to bring upon Israel before chapter 25, but now he is hearing the judgment that is going to come across one nation, one country after another that is around Israel. Tyre is the one in chapter 28 he is dealing with, the nation, the real nation of Tyre, which was located just north of Israel. And in chapter 28, God gives to him the judgment that's coming against Tyre and against the prince of Tyre, meaning the guy in charge, the person who rules and reigns in Tyre. And then he says something very strange. When you come to verse 11 and verse 12, he then shifts it to the king of Tyre, but the the description he gives of this individual is not a human being. It is so obvious. There's a whole bunch more to the passage that we have not yet read, and when we get to it, you'll see, well, this, this can't be a person. No, he is giving a description of the power behind the power. With every evil person in power, there is There is a power behind the power. With every good person in power, there is a power behind the power. This guy that is the prince of Tyre has a power behind him that is designated in the passage as the king of Tyre. But then when he describes him, this is not a human being he's talking about. God created an angelic realm, and in that angelic realm, He created an angel that we now know as Satan. He was a good guy. He was one of the greatest of God's creations at that time, but he rebelled against God. 
Now, we're going to get into that in just a moment, but here's the point I'm wanting you to grab hold of is this. As a created being, the devil is not eternal. He did not always exist. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-present, and he's not all-powerful. Satan is limited, and it's so important we understand this. I hear so many people talking about Satan as though he is sort of an equivalent of God or just below him. But he does not have the nature of God. He is a created being. He is not everywhere. He can only be one place at a time. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He is a limited being, a created being. Satan was created as a guardian cherub. Listen to what he says in the next verse in Ezekiel 28. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. In the Bible, there is the whole designation of different levels of angels. There, there are the seraphim. We've actually talked about the seraphim in the past. And there, there's the cherubim. He is one of these. And a couple of, of these angels that are either seraphim or cherubim were also elevated to archangels. And he is one. There are ministering angels that minister to Christ followers. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. There are angels that God designates that, that meet out the punishment, the judgment of God. There are also angels that attend to the throne of God. And Satan is one of those angels. He is one of the ones who is the choice ministering angel to God himself. This is Satan before he falls. Now the question is, if he's created, if he was a choice, an archangel, a cherub, a choice ministering angel before the throne of God, when was he created? Well, the interesting thing is there's no mention of angels being created in the entire Genesis story. I mean, in Genesis 1 and 2, the whole Genesis creation part story, there's no mention of angels at all. But yet in chapter 3, there he is. And he's already fallen and he is already the tempter. So it is obvious that there was this whole creation account that we are given of the creation of this universe. Before all of this happened, these angels already existed. I don't know any other explanation for it. It is only one of the many reasons, the many hints that I see in Scripture of there being another universe and not just ours. Not, a, not just universes, but a multiverse. And I believe that to be the case. Whether it's the case or not, I guess we find out when we get to heaven. And when you walk into heaven in another universe, you might say, you know, I think that preacher was right after all. I don't know. This is just my suspicion, but I think there's another universe. There is another part of God's creation that we do not get the account of where all of these individuals, these beings that we call angels and demons existed, exist today. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 13 is another thing we need to grasp about him. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, if this was a human being, that that doesn't even make sense. There's only two human beings in Eden, the garden of God, and that's Adam and Eve and nobody else. 
it's another one of the hints. He's not talking about a person here. He's talking about the power behind the power. Every precious stone adorns you. Ruby, topaz, and emerald. Chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. He gives all this list of these stones, by the way. As he's describing Satan in his pre-fallen state, he was so beautiful. He has all these stones. By the way, the high priest's breastplate that represented all of Israel had every single one of these same stones. And in Revelation chapter 21, when he is describing the new Jerusalem that we will experience one day in heaven, this new Jerusalem that will be there, the whole foundation of that new Jerusalem are these very stones. These are precious to God. Why? I don't know. These are special to him. Only that which is the most special does he adorn with these stones. The breastplate of the high priest, the, the uh, new Jerusalem in heaven, and Lucifer, Satan, the devil. Satan was beautiful and powerful, an angel of light. He is a created being. He is limited. He is subject to God. God created him to be beautiful. The second thing that we learn in the passages is this. The devil is a corrupted being. Ezekiel 28, verse 15, the next verse. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Here is the greatest of all the angels. Here is the archangel, one of the two archangels. Here is the, the beautiful and the powerful and majestic Satan who becomes wicked, how? In the, the verse 17 of Ezekiel 28, your heart became proud on your account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. How did Satan become corrupted? Satan fell because of pride, because of pride of his own beauty. Because of pride of his own abilities, he became corrupted because of his own pride. And it's not the only passage in the Bible to say it. In that second passage in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, listen to what he says. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the most, uh, utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself the most high. You will see five I wills in the passage. You see them? Five I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of this assembly. I will make myself the most high God, the last I will. Here is this angel that God created, the most beautiful and most powerful of them all, and he decided, 
I want to be God. I will usurp God's authority. I will push him off the throne. I will take over all of creation. And it's exactly what he attempted to do. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 15 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride, listen to me, pride always, pride, pride, pride. Pride always goes before destruction. Pride always goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit always before a fall. Satan saw his beauty, he saw his power, he saw his majesty, he saw his wisdom, and he decided, I'm something. He was something because God made him that way, but he decided, I am something because I am something. And how many times do we see people do exactly the same time, same thing? How many times have we been tempted? Well, look at me. What wise decisions I make. How intelligent I am. I know. I look around to a group who are brilliant people all over this worship center. I get it. You are so wise. You are so knowledgeable. You have such great decision-making ability. You have so much talent. But I'm going to tell you, the moment we begin to think we're something is the beginning to the end of us. Can I tell you what we actually are? We are God-made people. That's who we are. He's the one that gave you that talent. He's the one that gave you that ability. He's the one that put that wisdom inside you. He's the one that gave you that intelligence. It is God. You are a work of God. And the moment you begin to get high on the horse, the moment you begin to get puffed up in your own supposed greatness is the beginning of the end. A haughty spirit always leads to destruction. It's not surprising that we struggle with pride. It isn't surprising at all because Satan is trying to sow himself into our lives. Satan is trying to destroy us, and the greatest way to destroy us is to make us like him. There's one more thing you need to know about him in this regard, in this second part, and that is that in Satan's rebellion, he also took with him a third of the angelic hosts. We know this from Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, read it uh, this afternoon. That entire chapter has to do with Israel and Satan's attack against Israel. And the, the, it's all symbolic all the way through this chapter. And Satan is the great dragon all the way through this chapter. And he says in verse 4, and his tail, he's talking about this great dragon, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Every single commentary that you read will all say, what are these stars? These stars are used symbolically all through the Old Testament to talk about the angelic realm. The stars all over the Old Testament are talking about the angelic realm when they're not talking about actual stars. They're symbolic. That's why in Job, when Satan comes to be in front of God, he is among the stars, it says, the angelic realm. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 is actually verifying this whole idea. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, one-third of the angelic realm rebelled against God. Not only did Satan deceive himself, he deceived one-third of the angelic realm that had actually seen God and been with God, and he deceived them. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. His desire 
is to take that which corrupted him and use it to corrupt you and me. Through the pride and the rebellion of our own heart. And every time we hear ourselves, I don't care what God says. I do not care what the Bible says. I will do what I want to do. I will live the way I want to live. I will act the way I want to act. I will do what I want to do. That is exactly what he said. I will, I will, I will in rebellion against God. Every time we hear in our hearts, I say, I will be what I want to be and do what I want to do. We are actually acting just like him. He's a created being. He, he is a corrupted being. But the third thing is that the devil is a condemned being. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 16. But I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you. The devil is on his way to what the Bible describes as the lake of fire. But Satan knew, though he cannot prevail, he wanted to destroy God's plan to save us. He wanted to thwart God's plan to save us, to rescue us. And so when Jesus came, what did he do? He knew this was the Son of God. He knew this was the solution that the Father had sent. He knew this. And when he approached Jesus, he tempted him on the mountain. You remember the Mount of, of Temptation, trying to get Jesus to do one sin, just one part of a sin, because if he had, he knew Jesus could not be the rescuer. When that did not happen, did not work for him, he tried everything that he could. He, he, he brought accusations. He brought attempts of intimidation against Jesus Christ. And finally, he brought the ultimate. He had Jesus nailed to a cross. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross and he saw Jesus die, he said, I've won. I've won. He can't save the world. I've won. He's dead. But what he didn't know is the cross of Jesus Christ put the last nail in Satan's own coffin. That's what he didn't understand. That's what he didn't know. Listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed Satan's powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by what? The cross. It was the cross that did him in. This is what shocked Satan. I have done away with him. I have killed him. Oh, no. No, you haven't. You have just destroyed yourself. What happens then? What happens? How, did, how is this a public spectacle? What happens? Well, in uh, the, those three days that Jesus' body is in the grave... The Scriptures actually in several places say that Jesus is doing different things. There is, there is a passage in the book of Hebrews that talks about what Jesus is doing during that time. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that talks about what Jesus is doing during that time. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, a very strange passage, difficult to understand. I've taught on this passage with you before, and it is during that moment, this passage, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22, 
says that Jesus went and spoke to the spirits in prison. It is the demons in hell. And when he comes to them, he comes and says to them, you are defeated. You are doomed. I have won through my cross. I have beaten you. And he embarrassed them. He made a spectacle of them triumphing over them. And then at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, up from the grave, he arose. And when he arose from that grave, the time that Jesus came out of the grave, the devil already knew at that point he had lost the battle. He already knew that the victory would never be his. Death was arrested. Death was arrested, and our lives began. Amen. When Jesus arose from the grave, he demonstrated that death and sin had been conquered. So listen to what Jesus says, the resurrected Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18 about himself. He says this, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and hell. Amen? I hold the keys of death and hell. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to what Jesus said during his ministry. He said on Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Then God will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? The devil. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was never prepared for people. God did not make hell for people. He made hell for the devil and his angels. And yet, though that is true, Jesus is looking at people in this passage of Scripture, and he is saying, God did everything he could do to turn your heart around and give you the opportunity to know him, but still you refuse. Depart from me, you cursed into the place that was prepared not for you, but for the devil and his angels, but now there you are. I want you to know that God did literally everything that he could possibly do to keep you and I out of that place and to bring us into a relationship with him. He did everything that you could be, could be understood to do. He, God, took on a body. He came to the earth. He, he lived like a servant. He, he lived in poverty. He came and taught us about himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He taught us about himself. He lived a perfect life so that he could be the sacrifice for us. And then he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. I'm going to the extent he's saying to us that I will take your place and I will die on your behalf for your sin. And then he rose from the grave and he offered to us the gift of eternal life. And he said, if by faith you would accept Jesus as your Savior, you'll be saved forever. He will love you and come into your heart and save you and bring you into his family and save you forever, always in the presence of God throughout eternity. I have done this for you because I love you. Would you give your heart to me? But he does not make us do it. He gives us the freedom to choose. So what do you choose? 
And he says, if you'll choose me, I'll save you forever. Please come. Please come and give your heart to me. But if you choose to walk away from me, I give you the ability to do it. Because love is not love when it's forced. Choosing God isn't really choosing God if there's no option but to do it. And so he gave us a choice. And here's what I want to say to everyone in this room. If you haven't given your heart to Christ, would you do it? Would you say yes to him? There's only two families. There is the family of God and there is the other family. And to cross over to the family of God, it is to come to say, God, I cannot save myself. I'm going to stop trying to be good enough to get to heaven. I'll never be good enough. And by faith, I receive the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And when we do that, he comes to live inside of us and begins to change us from the inside out. And I ask, I'm asking you today, would you give your heart to Christ? Would you give your heart to Christ today?